Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on December 18th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. The big story around the whole world this week is the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. Scientific American's David Biello is there. We'll get the view from the ground. And we'll also talk with Stephen Sanderson, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York, based at the Bronx Zoo. He has an article out in the current issue of, strange as it may seem, Foreign Affairs. And we'll talk about that. First up, Dave Biello. I called him December 17th in the evening Copenhagen time. So, Dave, the uh, appropriate question would be, uh, how's the weather there? It's quite cold and blustery, Steve. <laughs> Ironically. Yes, exactly. Uh, and how's the climate there? Uh, the climate is a little uh, heated, actually, uh, once you get inside the Bella Center here in Copenhagen. Um, tensions are pretty high, even though the Bella Center is a lot quieter now that the non-governmental organizations or or civil society, if you will, uh, has been kicked out of the building. Um, but the negotiations are uh, as fraught as ever, and um, the negotiators are going down to the wire, just like always. So, Dave, what ex- I mean, we all know that there's this gigantic conference. I mean, how many people are actually at the conference? Uh, somewhere between twenty-five and 40,000 people. At any... uh, have made it into the Bella Center, I should say. Um, about 100,000 marched in Copenhagen last Saturday, um, calling for urgent action on climate change. And what exactly is being negotiated? What's on the table? There are a couple of different things. One is uh, whether we will proceed with the Kyoto Protocol or not. Uh, this is the treaty decided back in the 1990s to curb uh, greenhouse gas emissions with legally binding targets for developed countries. Of course, the U.S. Uh, dropped out of that process and uh, declined to ratify that treaty, obviously. Um, and the question is, can the U.S. be brought back in in some way? The U.S. has said no. And so there are these kind of two parallel tracks, one negotiating a successor, a son of Kyoto, and one negotiating whatever kind of deal will bring in more countries not just the U.S., but also developing countries like China and India uh, that have become big big emitters. Now, is anybody surprised that a negotiation with almost 200 separate parties is going a little uh, haywire? I don't think too many people are surprised. Um, I've been at so-called conferences of the parties before, and I believe that there have been, uh, well, obviously 15 of these, and I would be surprised if any of them ended on time. Usually the negotiators go right down to the last minute, and even into the, you know, kind of the day after the negotiations are supposed to end to craft some form of deal. It reminds me of a trip I took to uh, Samsu Island here in Denmark uh, last weekend. This is an island of uh, about 4,000 people that has gone 100% renewably powered, in order to do that, they had to individually negotiate with each of the residents of that island. They had a lot of difficulties, and that was with just 4,000 people. We're talking about 6.5 billion um, basically negotiating here, so you can understand why it might take some time. And I've been following what's going on there, you know, through the mass media and through representatives of the mass media and their personal tweets from the conference and it it just seems like a lot of 
chaos? I wouldn't say there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of posturing, um, and that's pretty common for uh, international negotiations on climate change. Uh, everybody likes to uh, beat their chests and uh, you know stake uh, extreme positions, and they do that right up until well about today, because uh, today is when heads of state started filtering in, uh, and tomorrow obviously our own president will be here. Um, so the kind of chest thumping is coming to a close already. You can see um, some concessions being made today. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton came and gave a speech in which she said that the U.S. would be willing to contribute to a $100 billion fund uh, to help pay for adaptation and, and clean development in the developing world. That had been a big demand of the develop, developing world and uh, something that uh, negotiators here have uh, welcomed. Uh, at the same time, uh, China has uh, begun to make noises about uh, accepting some form of uh, so-called transparency, some kind of monitoring or verification that they are, in fact, uh, going to uh, reduce emissions as much as they say they are. Now, this $100 billion fund, is that something that would be treaty-dependent where the Senate would have to be involved, or is it something the administration can just do? No, it's entirely uh, treaty-dependent for sure. Um, because the way the announcement was made was we'll, we'll, we would be happy to contribute to this fund if and only if uh, developing countries sign up to uh, binding targets. So uh, there is still plenty of uh, negotiating to be done. So you've been following this beat for a long time, and you're actually on site there. What's What's your impression of... How things are going, you know, do you, do you think there will actually be something constructive that comes out of this by the time everybody's ready to leave? It's hard for me to believe that, uh, uh, so many world leaders, I believe it's 120, would come all the way to Copenhagen, um, to have a photo opportunity without signing something. Now, it may not be, you know, the solution to climate change, but I think that there will be probably some form of progress made here, whether it's um, an agreement to kind of pre-agree on what a uh, uh, what a treaty might look like, or if it's progress on reducing uh, deforestation and other issues that uh, that countries seem to be a lot closer to agreement on. And what is the actual scientific target that would be represented? by the policy in any kind of treaty? Well, that's a little hard to say. There's uh, no language in the text of the treaty right now that sets out a specific uh, target. Um, but what I've heard today and, uh, and in the past week or so is uh, two degrees Celsius warming is the uh, a target folks are aiming for. That uh, correlates, at least in negotiators' minds, to about uh, 450 parts per million concentration of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Right now we're actually at 387, so it's it's actually approaching pretty fast because we go up by about 2 ppm uh, per year, mm -hmm. which means we're at 450, you know, in, in the next 20 years. Okay. Um, a lot of scientists that I've spoken to think we have no chance of meeting 450 ppm, given that we haven't done uh, hardly anything to change our course. Um, and there are other scientists who say uh, that we're already well past kind of the safe point for concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, they'd like us to start uh, going backwards to 350 ppm or, or, or even lower. 
And that's something that actually some of the uh, countries here also support. For example, these so-called small island states, uh, some of which are, are already being lost to uh, rising seas. The two degrees Celsius, that's when does that start? What is the target date? You know, is that two degrees compared starting now and finishing in 2050, or what are what are the parameters there? Uh, the parameters there, and this is all remaining to be negotiated, so it could change. Uh, you know, in the next 48 hours, um, would be that basically global average temperature rise would be would never get above two degrees Celsius. We're already above uh, almost well 0.7 degrees Celsius. So compared uh, to what though? Compared to uh, pre-industrial um, temperatures, compared to where we were when we started the instrumental record back in the 19th century. Um, so they don't want us to get uh, two degrees Celsius above that. We're almost halfway to that temperature already. There's some uh, further warming kind of built in. Um, even if we stopped all emissions tomorrow, the, w- the world would continue to warm uh, on an average temperature basis. So that's a pretty ambitious target, and it's probably um, the only politically feasible target. But like I said, that's not necessarily what the science is saying we need to do. Because the science is saying we need to do a lot more than that. Correct. Well, uh, have a good flight back. <laughs> yeah, and it's the flights that are actually... Um, uh, contributing, I guess, the most carbon dioxide from this particular event, uh, us flying in and out is, uh, is not too good for the climate either. But, uh, one of the things I've been, uh, re- very impressed by here is, um, a lot of the stories of hope. Um, uh, many folks have traveled a long way, uh, to share what they're doing, um, on a very local level to help combat climate change. And that's everything from kind of rural electrification in Africa and India, you know, bringing light to people uh, who are still using dung or coal for cooking and heating um, and uh, dying from indoor air pollution to, you know, major renewable energy projects, uh, say here in Denmark, where they now get 20% of their electricity from wind power. That's, uh, that's a pretty impressive figure. Yeah, give me another story about some something that's hopeful. <laughs> I'm really going to have to rack my uh, rack my brain. What's what's also hopeful is some of the announcements that the U.S. government has made. We're really on a on a charm offensive here, I guess. I, I counted at least five cabinet secretaries who were uh, cramming themselves into a crowded uh, press room um, that was open to you know normal people and uh, and journalists, and uh, right across from the EU pavilion and kind of competing for for headspace with those folks, and they were touting all the things that the U.S. is doing now and how we've changed direction. Uh, so Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, Nobel physicist, writer for Scientific American, was there touting uh, some of the investments we're making with uh, China and India to develop uh, clean energy technology. Secretary of State Clinton was there to announce this $100 billion uh, potential investment uh, that we're willing to make if uh, if we can get a climate deal that's... Uh, uh, you know, equitable and uh, strong. And uh, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack was there to announce uh, a global alliance to combat uh, emissions from agriculture, which is actually a large portion of uh, human emissions of greenhouse gases come from, you know, growing grain and uh, fertilizer and, and, of course, uh, our, our, our love affair with meat. Um, 
they've announced a global alliance with uh, a number of different countries contributing money to try to figure out how we can both cut down those climate change emissions and prepare for uh, an increase in human population to about 9 billion by mid-century. So we both need to bring emissions down and feed more people on basically the same amount of land. And uh, that'll that'll be a big challenge. And, and really, you know, the whole conference has been dotted with, uh, with U.S. luminaries trying to get across the message that uh, that we've re-engaged on this issue, that we want to combat climate change, and that we're serious. All right, Dave. Well, thanks very much. And, uh, you know, button up and stay warm. I will try. It's going to be a tall order. <laughs> well, in the short run. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Look for David Biello's Copenhagen coverage at our website, scientificamerican.com. Dave also does our weekly 60-second Earth podcast, and you can follow his tweets as D-B-L-O, D-B-I-E-L-L-O. Next up, Stephen Sanderson, the president and chief executive officer of the Wildlife Conservation Society. His doctorate is actually in poli-sci from Stanford. While on faculty at the University of Florida, He directed that institution's Tropical Conservation and Development Program. He's the author of several books about Latin American politics and the environment, and he designed and ran the Ford Foundation's Amazon Conservation and Rural Poverty Program. I wanted to talk to him because he has an opinion piece called Where the Wild Things Were in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, which is not the place I expected to see an article about wildlife conservation. We spoke on December 15th at his office at the Central Park Zoo in Manhattan. You have an article in Foreign Affairs magazine. It's the second. It's a sequel to or a postscript to a piece I wrote in 2002. And WCS has had several in the last few years because foreign affairs is perfect for conservation. The reason is that the problems of conservation are really the problems of the international system. Trying to figure out how to deal with the global commons in an international system that's built around national sovereignty. So it's one of the great puzzles, just like the oceans or uh, global defense or um, colonizing outer space. These are great, great global issues, and foreign affairs um, deserves to know about these things and struggle with them. But let's talk about briefly what you know. What's give me the bad news first. The bad news is kind of a mixed bit of bad news, which is that despite the fact that we're doing a lot of really good conservation and there are a lot of great success stories, overall we're losing. And the reason we're losing is that the global system doesn't pay the same amount of attention to the issues surrounding the future of the earth as they do around the short-term issues of economic development or growth or trade or uh, high foreign policy, which is really around national security and defense. So... Our message, my message, is that if the world wants to sustain the earth, and it shouldn't be an if, the world needs to pay special attention about how to organize that effort and to do better at it than it currently is. It always seems, though, that that these conservation issues are put on the back burner. When we get taken, when we get the economy taken care of, we'll worry about that. When we get the political situation stabilized will take care of that. So how do we get people to take care of that before those things happen, which in a lot of cases aren't really ever going to happen? The test for that was in the the last economic boom or the one at, before that, 
it was never taken care of. So when times are good, it's taken off the drawing board, and when times are bad, it's too expensive. The problem is that it's not a, a simple policy choice. We're talking about the ability to sustain life on Earth. Those who think that's far out into the future should just take a look at the observed evidence, which is that species are declining. We're seeing great losses of North American species. And two additional threats have come on the horizon that were never there before at a global level. And those are the emergence of infectious diseases and um, the other is climate change. And those are now rivaling uh, habitat loss and um, and the exploitation of, of the earth for economic growth as a source of, of declining species and, and pristine landscapes. Talk a little bit about the relationship between conservation and infectious disease emergence. We were pioneers in this field in the Wildlife Conservation Society because we've been doing wildlife health for over a 100 years, and that's because we operate zoos and parks and, and we're engaged in research on, on wildlife health. Now we've got 100 vets around the world, so that's uh, uh, an additional um, growth area for us, if you will. What has turned out to be the case is that when we see something like um, Ebola, it turns out to be a disease found among wildlife that affects human communities. And as we've discovered through years and years of work in the Congo Basin, it is also killing wildlife off at uh, at a great pace. So there are these empty holes in the Congo Basin where there are no great apes, and it is thought, and there is evidence to uh, suggest that that's from hemorrhagic fevers that are being passed around among animals and also among human communities. So we're finding a, a strong linkage between wildlife health, domestic animal health, and human public health. Another great example is tuberculosis among elephants. Moving through populations now that the fences have come down around parks in South Africa and moving through human and domestic uh, domestic animal populations that are infected with tuberculosis or who could be infected with tuberculosis. So we're trying to make that connection between wildlife health and human public health in a way that protects both. I had not heard about elephants and tuberculosis. That's pretty amazing. A, a lot of hoofstock is eligible just as humans are for tuberculosis. And it's very hard to test wildlife. I mean, you can't ask an elephant to do a TB tine test or or to flush its trunk, which is what we do with elephants in captivity. And that's a decent test. So we're developing whole new protocols for that. But if you look at distemper, canine distemper and feline distemper have been decimating lion populations for years and years and years. And it's from domestic animals infecting wild populations. Uh, hoof and mouth among Tibetan and um, Mongolian um, wild sheep is affecting domestic livestock and vice versa. People depend on it. Nature depends on it. One of the most interesting um, new bits of evidence is that wildlife health and ecosystem health and the storage of carbon dioxide are tightly linked. So if you have robust populations of wildebeest, they're keeping the grasslands healthy, and they're also keeping the predators healthy who depend on them for food. So keeping those wildebeest happy is important to locking up the CO2 stores of the savanna of Africa, as well as keeping um, the ecosystem stable. You mentioned climate change as, a, as another area that, that comes into play here. And yeah, the the relationship between 
a, uh, a robust wildlife population and carbon storage is probably not well known out there. It's not well known. But as with infectious diseases, we're seeing that these are both potential calamities, but they're also potential opportunities. We're finding, and it's pretty well known by now, that that CO2 stored in vegetation around the world represents, and its loss from deforestation and degradation represents 17 to 20 percent of total CO2 emissions. If we can conserve that forest or wetlands or grasslands that are being lost and emitting CO2 into the atmosphere, we are also conserving habitat for the wildlife of the earth. So Congo Basin, Amazon rainforest, the wetlands of Southeast Asia, the peat forests of Southeast Asia, and on and on. And also the Alaskan frontier. If we can preserve those areas, we're, we've got a triple bottom line because it's going to be good for humans by stabilizing the climate. It's going to be good for the wildlife because we're protecting their habitat. And it's going to be good for economic growth in the long term because it's going to be uh, sustaining human populations locally. But it's not good for some people's economic growth in the short term. And that seems to be the biggest stumbling block to doing anything about this. I think it's because people are thinking in a very narrow way. And it's part of the problem of Copenhagen. They're locked into a view that doesn't take into account a lot of interests at play. So we saw earlier today that developing countries were threatening to walk out of the talks unless some sort of indemnification were made possible. Over the weekend, a report was issued on on the rights of indigenous people to their forest habitat and so forth. We think that there are models whereby you can protect carbon, you can pay for it with a cap and trade or an offset scheme, and you can endow these these wonderful wild areas with a sustaining trust fund that also flows money to local people for short-term, medium-term, and long-term economic development. Does that mean somebody has to forego economic growth in the short term? Probably. But if you look at the real economic yield from these areas, it is not great. And the cost to the world is is fabulously high. You talk in the article about, uh, we'll move on to some, some of the good news. You talk about the Cambodian situation. Why don't you tell the listeners about the, the good stuff that's going on there? Cambodia is a great example of the potential of the international system and the and the threat that it might be overlooked. It's a small country. It does not have the kind of presence in the international stage of a China or an India or a Brazil. But it is concerned about the future of its force, and it wants to play in the climate game. That is, it wants to participate in any kinds of offsets that might benefit its economy and also its its wild areas. We worked with the Cambodian government to provide the technical background to allow them to set up the Sema Protection Forest, which is in eastern Cambodia, a really wonderful area for wildlife, about the size of Yosemite, and set it up strictly for the protection of carbon when it was being deforested by people in search of economic well-being. The money that will go to purchase the saved carbon for offsets in in developed countries will go into a trust fund that will train foresters and protected area managers and also to provide economic uh, wherewithal for alternative livelihoods for local people. Now, this is in a country that is very, very poor and barely able 
to think about such broad-gauged policies. And yet they're ready to do it. So why not the richer countries of the world? Environmental services that have economic value are performed every day by the habitat. There was a paper that just came out about this uh, in the last few weeks. I forget which journal it in appeared nature, in. In Nature, there was a very was it nice in nature? piece, yes. How do we get that word out that that your your wetlands filter your water and that has an economic impact that right now we're getting for free? Front page above the fold in the Times today. About I didn't see that. What, about the hydrology of the Andes and how it serves human life in the most important suburb of La Paz. And these disappearing glaciers are going to mean that people can't live there anymore or that the hydrology changes in a way that washes away their their crops because of a fast melt and on and on and on. If you were to go to the Everglades, and I used to be involved with the Everglades restoration, if you go to the Everglades and ask anybody on the borders what, what the Everglades is all about, the Everglades system, the official answer will be it's about water availability and flood control. My answer would be it's also about sustaining one of the great wetlands on Earth. And with all of its variability and flushing and, and, and so forth, those two things, flood control and water availability, are ecosystem services that the Everglades is providing. They're human-managed services. But people, if only you would denominate it in language that they, that they commonly refer to, would understand exactly what they're getting. Ask the people who live along the Mississippi about flood. But ask people who own bottomland about the nutrient re-enrichment of the soil from those floods. So I think there's an intuitive feel for these things among people who live near or in these valuable ecosystems. The great problem in humanity is that we've tried our hardest and very successfully to get as far away as we can from wild nature. And so we don't understand its language anymore. You were actually on the National Academy of Sciences Oversight Committee on Restoration of the Greater Everglades Ecosystem. Yes. Which is a lot of words, but um, it's pretty clear that that's a very important function. Um, this is not related to the foreign affairs piece, but I did want to ask you what's what's going on in the Everglades right now? I mean, that's, that's one of the keystone uh, environments in the, in the United States, and it also has a great kind of national psychological value it's been a great thing that the everglades is seen as a national park and as a national icon people know where it is or vaguely where it is and what it's about and marjorie stoneman douglas in her great book the river of grass very evocative stuff i think it continues to be a great challenge for Florida because Florida has nothing in its laws or zoning or planning mechanisms that call for the state to limit the human population load in South Florida. And for the most part, the economic activity is not limited either. So if you want to do hydroponic tomatoes in the southeastern border of the Everglades, live it up. Now the economic downturn has slowed some of those processes of change, but as long as you've got 12 million or 13 or 15 million people in South Florida ringing the Everglades, then all of what you try to do in the Everglades will be human-denominated. And you won't get a natural system back. What you'll get is something you can live with. 
that will have elements of its diversity and so forth. I think one of our great challenges is to think of ecosystem services or environmental services as natural outcomes. And not all of them in every way serve humanity, but they serve the continuation of the earth and its processes. Serve humanity directly. That's correct, in the short term. Fair enough. Um, is it is it better, you know, this is a simplistic question, but is the Everglades better than it was 10 years ago, 20 years yes. ago? It's better off. I think there's more attention paid to it. There's been money put toward it. There have been rivers that have been uh, returned to the wild. They've been unchanneled, as it were. It, the plumbing is different, as the Corps of Engineers would say. And the water management, I think, takes into account a lot more Everglades values in it. So those are all great gains. When nutrients, it's usually phosphates, get into the uh, the waters of the Everglades, it really just disrupts the whole system. These are runoffs from mostly the sugar plantations, right? Well, sugar is, is a, a very easy and clear target because it sits right on the side of the Everglades. And phosphorus from, uh, from sugar has been an issue. The sugar operations have their special place, though, because part of the financing for the state's contribution to the Everglades restoration has come through a levy on sugar. And there has been a kind of decommissioning of a lot of sugar land as a result of this. So I can't indict them in that, in that way. What's interesting is that that sugar problem, which is a real one, allows you not to pay any attention to stormwater runoff from suburban development. So one of the exercises that was really a thought experiment was to say, uh, well, if sugar weren't there, what would be there? And the alternatives were maybe a, a better land use in the form of no use or a conservation or a buffer area. But many would say, well, you know, sugar when you compare it with a suburban development, is actually a pretty benign use. So if you do the models, um, it's not just sugar, it's all of us. So people who are fertilizing their lawns or, or the kind of nutrient enrichment or the pollution, the heavy metal pollution that comes from roadways and so forth, we face that here in, in the Sound. Uh, we face it in the Bronx River and, and, and in the Hudson, the East River. And um, those w are without sugar plantations, so... Overall, on, on both a local level, we're here in New York City on a local level and then on a global level, you, you appear to be optimistic to me. <laughs> He's smiling. I have to be optimistic. We've got 3,000 people overseas and we've got 1,000 people in New York who, who lace up their boots every day and work for conservation. And we've got donors and governments and, and scientific organizations that call on us and depend on us. And, and it's our obligation to deliver against that challenge. We've found great new populations of Irrawaddy dolphins, which a few years ago were expected to blink out in no time. We found a huge new population of Western lowland gorillas. Um, I mean, you mean huge. That's over 100,000, right? Right. Yeah. That's correct. So it changed the way we look at endangerment, but also caused us to to um, work with uh, the government of Congo to establish new protected areas, to work on what we can do to protect the gorilla's health from hemorrhagic fevers or from ecotourism, for that matter, because they can catch anything that we have. So there are great success stories. We're developing a national elephant conservation plan for Tanzania in cooperation with the government, privately funded, 
And they were so excited about it, they began to co-fund it through their agencies, as as difficult as that is for a, a country as poor as Tanzania. So there are a lot of successes that we point to as reasons to go on. The The great intractable, the great challenge that's outside our control is that the people who are in Copenhagen and their successors have got to wake up to the fact that we are altering the course of the earth. And the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change a few years ago in its fourth assessment, 2007, said to the Europeans, but it could have been to the, the Americans for that matter in a different context, that Europeans, if you care for your songbirds, as Europeans really do, look to Africa and how African habitats are doing. 84% of the migratory birds in the world are vulnerable to climate change. So if we care about geese and swans and um, and all sorts of songbirds and so forth, flamingos, we've got to figure this out. And we as a private nonprofit organization can't do it along, uh, alone. We can provide some of the technical and and practical solutions. But if the global community doesn't get together, this will really mark um, the beginning of a, of a changed world, and it won't be for the better. And they they have to care in Europe because the species that they love to see are going to Africa on the other end of their migration. Correct. I was uh, there's this wonderful uh, little story, if you'll permit me. And I was in Bwindi, impenetrable forest, in August, uh, in Uganda, in southwest Uganda, and it's where you can see mountain gorillas. And we've been working with the the Ugandan Wildlife Authority to protect it for some time now. And I was up at around. Um, 7,000, 8,000 feet elevation. And there is this story that on the evening of the Feast of the Assumption, which is August 15th, uh, the rains will come after the dry season, and also the kites will, these great birds of prey, will come from Europe to their African migration. And it had been the driest time on record, and people were really concerned there wasn't any water in town and so forth. And about midnight on August 14th, 15th, um, the rains came and we got three and a half inches overnight. And I walked outside of this um, uh, place I was staying in the morning when the, the rain broke and I looked up in the sky and there were kites flying over in, in dozens. And I just thought, you know, this is a phenomenon that makes the world go around. And I was lucky enough to be there and to see it and to be part of it and smell it and just feel it. The world can't afford to lose that kind of stuff. Stephen Sanderson's Foreign Affairs article, Where the Wild Things Were, is available online. Just search for it at foreignaffairs.com or get to it directly by going to www.snipurl.com slash Sanderson. running a bit long. I wanted to get this episode out there as soon as I could, so I'm going to save our quiz feature, Totally Bogus, to be released by itself tomorrow. That's Saturday, December 19th, because if it's Saturday, it's Bogus Day. In the meantime, check out scientificamerican.com for breaking science stories, blogs, slideshows, George Musser's continuing efforts to get his house solarized, and articles from the magazine, including the one by George, being highlighted today about extrasolar planets and whether they might be made of diamond. 
if only Richard Burton were alive. You can follow us on Twitter as Siam, S-C-I-A-M. David Biello's on Twitter as D-B-L-O, D-B-I-E-L-L-O. There's always room for Biello. And me as Steve Mirsky, S-T-E-V-E-M-I-R-S-K-Y. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I am Steve Mirsky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.